We invite you this morning to read with us at Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 29. We'll read through verse 35. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 29 through 35. Luke 7 and 29 reads, And all the people that heard him, Jesus, And the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. The title of our message this morning will be taken from verse 30, where it says, The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him, John the Baptist. And the title will be Rejection of the Gospel. Rejection of the Gospel. In verses 24 through 28, Jesus has been very complimentary to people, his audience, about John the Baptist, his forerunner, the one to whom Christ himself submitted himself for water baptism. Verse 29 and 30, where we began our reading, is the people's reaction to that and what John was and what Christ said of him and compliments of him. And in verses 31 then through 35, the rest of our reading, we have the rejectors of both John, John's baptism, and of course Christ himself, as it were, characterized. Verses 31 through 35, probably the words in red of our Lord in your Bible. So rejection of the gospel. Rejection of the gospel, I think I could clearly say, is the greatest mistake any human being could probably ever make. What's at stake for rejecting the gospel? Eternity, your soul. There's nothing more valuable than the soul. The body is certainly not worth it, as we can see. But the soul is where it's at, and it's a soul that will live on in eternity. And the gospel of Jesus Christ gives hope for the souls of sinners. And we know that, that believe because we once were hopeless, and now we have hope. If you believe in Christ... For the remission of your sins, then your eternal destiny is settled and you don't have anything to dread or to fear and you have the only hope that there really is. 
But to reject the message of the gospel is to disobey that message, as we mentioned this morning in Sunday school. It is to not believe the message that God has given. To reject the gospel is to reject God's word. To reject the gospel is to reject God's son. Therefore, it is to reject God himself. And even goes further than that to make God a liar. And I want to read that to you for emphasis this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, verse 11. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm reading the uh, wrong chapter. Anybody notice that? Chapter 5, verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believed not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So another definition for the gospel is, it is the record of God's Son who he was, where he come from, why he came down here, how he came down here, what he came down here for, what he did while he was here, who he was while he was here, what happened while he was here, and where he went after he left here. All that's the gospel. That's God's record of his son. I, I love that definition of the gospel. And so again, the greatest mistake one can make is to be exposed or hear that record, hear that testimony, and to negligently set it aside or angrily reject it or anything in between. Greatest mistake you'll ever make because that mistake and that rejection will be paid for for all eternity. Of course, to sin against God, as I have just read, or to, to reject the gospel is a sin against God because it is to accuse God of lying. When the gospel is preached and sinners don't believe it, their essence, by their inaction and unbelief, saying, well, that's not true. For if it were true, they would obey it. So they do not accept it as being true. And we've all been guilty of that, have we not? Unless you were saved the first time you heard the gospel, then you're guilty of that as I have and was many times. But not only is it a sin against God... The text says something also there in verse 30 that the rejection by the Pharisees and lawyers of the gospel preached by John and also, of course, by Christ was and had consequences in that their unbelief of it and rejection of it was against themselves. Against themselves. Think about that. So... A sinner who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects it can only blame himself and has done the greatest harm to himself that anybody can ever do. You don't have to worry about how others have or may harm you. To disbelieve the gospel is to do the greatest harm you can do to your own self. It is put the noose on your own neck it is to stand on the trap door yourself. It is to seat yourself in the place of execution. It's against yourself. 
So again, I've said a couple of things here this morning that should get our attention. Rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest mistake a sinner can ever make. And it is the greatest harm that sinner can ever do against themselves. And we would put that in two categories, both presently and throughout all eternity against yourself. It's a characteristic of sinners, as we know, since we all are sinners, even though we're sinners saved by grace now, is to point a finger and blame others for things against ourselves. But the bottom line is grace teaches us we're our own worst enemy and we do more harm to ourselves than everybody else put together ever could. And that's manifested in rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's talk first of all about the rejection by those present here and the rejection of others of the two great messengers, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Now the Bible tells us very clearly as we read and study the Old Testament, God's always had his messengers, hasn't he? He's always had his message and a witness before men, mankind, throughout all generations. He has raised up men of God, many of whom were called seers or prophets in the Old Testament to deliver his message, right? Similarly in the New Testament. So those that heard those messages and rejected the message of that man were rejecting God. They were rejecting the prophecies that were issued there. It was the same sin of unbelief and again to their own state of eternal consequences. They would die in their sins by rejecting those things. But have you ever wondered by just the little bit that's recorded in the Bible, whether they be the messages or discourses or things delivered, prophecies of the Old Testament, what would it have been like to hear those things? And of course, surely if you're a believer, you have wondered that in the New Testament about wonder what it would have been like to hear the Lord Jesus Christ just for a day. Whatever he said that day, whatever he was. Well, I don't want our imagination to get it carried away with us here, but it's a good thing to imagine. In fact, one of the best things you can imagine because the Bible tells us that the words that proceeded from his mouth were gracious words. We know they all were true words. We know they were without error. We know they had more hope in them than anybody that had ever spoken. They had more solutions than any, anything anybody had ever given. I mean, no wonder Mary wanted to sit at Jesus' feet. It seems like almost hypnotized, just, just catching every word. It even amazed his opponents. And I've always been amazed at that particular incident when the lawyers and so forth and Pharisees sent a group of individuals to go take Jesus and they came back empty-handed and they got rebuked and scolded for why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you? And said, never a man spake like this man spake. They were overwhelmed. Not only at what he said, but how he said it because of who he was. When we read the testimony of John the Baptist, you know, uh, 
Back in, uh, let's see, is it Luke? I think at the beginning here of Luke, there's the prophecy concerning him in Luke chapter 1 to his parents, to his father. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 17 He shall go before him, before Christ, in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Speaking of John the Baptist. And obviously we have the description of John in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. And I'm going to read that. And then we're going to discuss just for a moment and think about what it would have been like to hear this man preach. He was specially anointed of God. He was the only man who was given the authority to administer water baptism. And he was the forerunner uniquely of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 3 says of him, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to see him, went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And if you know anything about Elijah, you know he was a fiery prophet, wasn't he? And it says of John the Baptist that he would come in that same spirit and fiery power, zeal, enthusiasm. I think think he'd have been my kind of preacher. I think I could have listened to him, of course, in a regenerate state. I would have been like everybody else in an unregenerate state. I wouldn't have cared for what he had to say. But again, just from what we see here, wouldn't it have been something to have listened such a man anointed specially of God to deliver such a message and at the same time saying, I am not he, I must decrease, but he must increase. Lo, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, pointing out the Lord Jesus Christ. My, that would have been a powerful, powerful thing to see and hear and exhibit, wouldn't it? And to see the people around about coming out to hear him, to see those baptisms going on. I mean, my, what a time. And yet, he was complimented by Christ, really received the highest compliments Christ gave to any individual. In verses 24 through 28, which we're not going to read said there was never a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And said nobody greater than John the Baptist ever been born of a woman, and yet he that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Christ complimented John greatly. Looking back there uh, to verse 4, he asked him, "What, What did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? 
No, a lot more than that. And finally down in verse 33, we see, well, this is who you went out to hear and who you went out to see. And instead of appreciating him for what he was and a man sent from God and for his message, no, you scandalized and criticized (coughs) and rejected him. Verse 33, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he hath the devil. Some might say he's a wild man. He wasn't a wild man, but he was a man of very base means, obviously. Eating locusts and wild honey and wearing a leather and camel's girdle, supporting, holding his clothing and so forth. So he may appear rough around the edges and all, but Christ came in a different manner speaking more eloquently and graciously than even John did, even though they both had the same message. Christ was the living Word of God. He was the manifested Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, the Son of Man. And even though He didn't look and maybe act or had the manners of John, they rejected Him also. You think, well, John was fiery and Christ was soft and compassionate. No, don't, don't go down that road. That's not true. Uh, you know, when we start putting adjectives on there, they were both preaching the same thing with the same zeal and same enthusiasm. You say, yeah, but look what John said. You generation of vipers. Seemed like he was cruel. He was harsh. Read Matthew chapter 23, what Christ said seven times. Way unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus called men out just like John called them out. And if you're going to preach the truth of God's word, it's going to call people out for what they are. But again, both of them, two of the greatest preachers that ever lived, that ever walked the face of the earth, of course. I say two because Christ was obviously the greatest. But he had as his companion at the same time, John the Baptist, both of them preaching here. And people saw him, heard him, and witnessed those things at the same time. And yet, for the most part, they were scandalized, criticized, and accused. What said that John had a devil, Jesus came in verse 34, eating and drinking in a different manner, different diet, different manners, and a different way of living than John did, but nevertheless preaching the same truth. They said, oh, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of public and sinner. Well, what's that tell us? Well, something we already know that, you know, Human nature will always scandalize and criticize and mock and ridicule the message and the messenger that they don't like. If it's the truth, it cuts, and therefore there will be that reaction. Christ showed himself to be unequivocally the Messiah by the words message and the miracles that he performed yet he was continually scandalized criticized derided mocked it was even said of him that he hath the devil and of course john the baptist was beheaded and christ was crucified at wicked hands so again the two greatest messengers we might say at least two of the greatest and again christ was the greatest and i'm saying two had john that ever lived and preached were treated like the scum of the earth. And they preached the same message. This rejection is characterized, as we said in verses 31 through 35, by Christ. And this is where we want to focus the rest of our attention. Jesus asked 
in this characterization in verse 31 of their rejection, and that's the point he's pursuing, is they're rejecting both John and himself and their messages. What will I like the men of this generation? What are they like? In other words, what, what can I compare you people to that have rejected John and his message and rejected me and my message? What would I compare you to? And Jesus compared them to children. Children in the marketplace. Verse 32. Now let's just pause right there and think for just a moment. We're talking about adults, intelligent adults, learned individuals, Pharisees and lawyers of the law of God, the Moses, Mosaic law, the things of God, the oracles of God, and Jesus said they're like children. Well, what are the characteristics of a child? Well, it kind of varies depending on the age of the child, but some things are common with all children until they get out of childhood. A child is without understanding. About the first thing you can say, right? I mean, they're just without understanding. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean they're retarded. It doesn't mean they're handicapped. It just means children are without understanding. I mean, we don't come in, into this world with a pedigree of knowledge, do we? I mean, we come in empty. And the sad part is, as a child, you just soak up everything you come in contact with because you don't know any better. A child is without understanding. And if you're one without understanding, as a child is, that makes you pretty much automatically foolish. Right? I mean, foolishness comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of application of what you do know. So children are without understanding. They're foolish. They're children in the marketplace. So they're not at home doing chores. They're in the marketplace. They're idle and about playing, aren't they? And I mean, that's something you don't have to teach a child. They just naturally, we all did, didn't we? We like to play. We learned to play. We learned how to play. And, and to a child... Literally, life is just a game, isn't it? I mean, it's just a game. And it's sad when a child learns it's not a game. There's a reality to life, huh? I mean, I don't know if you had a defining moment in that yourself, but uh, you hopefully learn that. Some adults don't learn that, and they carry on like children. But without understanding, foolish, just plain, Life is just a big game, day in and day out. Just there to entertain and play and have fun and not take anything seriously. That's just the normal attitude of a child. And what else does a child do? Well, you watch children play, and of course we were all children at one time. If you think back, if that's too hard, then again you can just watch children play together and interact. Your grandchildren, the neighbor's children, your children, whoever they may be. Children automatically seek attention, usually. I mean, it's quite natural for a child to seek attention by doing things or saying things or behaving in a certain manner to get the applause or in order to be flattered by their playmates, right? And they can be very fickle in that regard. You know, when they're saying things, doing things, acting, cutting up, or behaving in a manner that gets other by attention, oh, they're just, they're just elated. Like they like the attention, don't they? 
But if something goes amiss and their playmates turn from them and they're not getting the attention of that, then just they can turn on a dime and just be upset and crying and pitch a fit and a hissy fit and a heartbeat, right? I mean, that's children. That's just the facts about children. They'd be happy one moment. I mean, not. I mean, literally from one moment to the next and unhappy the next. And, uh, you know, be in a pouting mood and then go from pouting to being mean to the very person that's wanting to, flat, to flatter them, right? When they don't get their way. Well, Jesus said those who reject the gospel are just like that. Just like that. They don't have understanding. They act foolishly. Uh, you know, they're pretending life is a game when they're realities of life, life and death. The gospel sets those things forward. They're seeking their own attention, their own flattery. They're fickle. They get unhappy when they don't get their way and when people don't applaud them. And I'm describing the Pharisees and Sadducees, but I'm really describing every sinner who rejects the gospel. And then we get into their activity. Jesus said they're active in two things here. They're characterized by piping. And piping is just a word for playing music on a flute. They call a a flute a pipe many times. And uh, you can see it in the Old Testament when Solomon was coronated or anointed in 1 Kings. I mean, there were many flutes or pipes piping, so to speak. Paul made mention of the piping a certain sound in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 7 in the New Testament. And again, a pipe is a flute, a musical instrument. You play different notes, different sequences of notes, different melodies. It's a music maker, right? So he characterizes these unbelieving Christ rejectors, gospel rejectors, John the Baptist rejectors, as children who are playing flutes, making little little music to one another in the marketplace and entertaining each other with either one of two types of music. And I think probably this is probably universal. We could probably say that, you know, I tried to think of this, and y'all help me out later on if uh, I'm in error here, but when you think of music, we tend naturally to to categorize music, don't we, as sad or upbeat, right? I mean, I don't know if we put much music somewhere in the middle there, you know? I mean, we either either get a feeling it's kind of sad, you know? But you can enjoy sad music because it has has meaning in it. In fact, I just appeal to the Bible and say the Bible says that it's better to mourn than it is to, (laughs) to experience joy. It's better to shed tears than it is laughter. You know, you learn more in the one than you do the other. But nevertheless... It seems like the the music is, again, it's either a sad song or it's a happy and upbeat song. The, the melody is either slow and kind of melancholy and tells a sad tale or, or it's something upbeat that makes people feel good and feel happy, right? I, I think we really can appreciate it all, can we not? If it's music, we should. But nevertheless, he mentions two types of music here that they pipe, and it has two reactions. We have piped to you that which is sad, which is a mourning type, and we got no reaction of you weeping or crying. And we piped unto you that which was upbeat and lively, and we got no dancing out of you, either one. 
So the child would be disappointed that they didn't get the proper reaction in that, right? Unhappy, unsatisfied, and so forth. Just like the Pharisees and Sadducees were with John the Baptist and with Christ. It didn't matter what type of man, what type of person was preaching the gospel to them. They didn't like it. They didn't want it. And to use the allegory, or not the allegory, but the analogy there of music, I would say the same thing. It doesn't matter the instrument that plays the gospel. People aren't going to like it. It just doesn't matter. If Christ and John the Baptist, two of the greatest examples there ever has been, and of course Christ again being the greatest, did not appeal to people, then who are we to think that we as preachers and the apostles and prophets and those who come after are ever going to have the appeal to attract people to the gospel? No, that's not going to happen. I want to say this to you, though, putting it in that analogy. Christ and John the Baptist were preaching the gospel from the same flute. Now think about that. Now just think about music and a musician for a while. I mean, suppose I had a... Well, there is a guitar up here. We have a musical instrument. And we have a piano here. Now, let's suppose one of you came up here and played the guitar, and then somebody else came up here and played the guitar. What, what's making the sound? What's making the music? The guitar or the person? I mean... You know, kind of a hypothetical question. But again, let's suppose both persons know how to play that song. One plays it on the same instrument, another plays it on the same instrument, but you say, well, it sounds different. Yet it was the same, let's suppose it was Amazing Grace. It's the same tune. Well, that's kind of like what Christ is teaching right here in the, in the comparison of him and John the Baptist They were both playing the same instrument and they were both playing the same song even though they were two different individuals. And it didn't matter how eloquent one could be or how lacking maybe another could be which I don't think either of them won, obviously. And the same would be true of us today. If we're preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel as an individual, as a preacher, or as a church, then we're playing off the same instrument they played off of. We may not play it as well as they did but we're playing the same message off of the same instrument. They weren't playing different things. Those who preach and teach heresy have to go pick up a different instrument and play a different tune. Because the Bible we have only plays one tune. It only has one message for those that proclaim the truth, and that's what it is, the truth in that regard. So somebody's going to preach something other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ is going to have to go to the devil's music store and get him own instrument you can't play the instrument God's given us from His Word in that, reject, in that Bible, in that, in that respect. Now, when we preach today, and others have preached, and others that will preach till the end of time again, we're preaching the same message. We're preaching to the same tune that they did. And if we're preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, I would say to you today that there are two aspects of the gospel. And I've always believed this and always preached this. Many people only preach what I would say one part of the gospel. But the gospel has two parts. There's a part that makes sad and there's a part that makes happy. 
And those who've been faithful to it, John the Baptist being one, Christ being the other, and the apostles and everybody that's ever preached have been faithful to preach both parts of the gospel. Now the gospel is defined as glad tidings or good news, and indeed it is. But that's not all it is. I don't try to get technical here, and I don't want to in that respect, but there is a part of the gospel that is sad and is mournful and a part of it that is happy and causes us to rejoice. And think about that. If you're disagreeing with that thought or not getting that thought in your mind, let me put it to you like this. Would we know what good news was if there was not bad news? No. What would there be If there was no bad news, there couldn't be good news, what would there be? There would only be news. I mean, if if there was not darkness, we wouldn't really know what light was, would we? Without darkness, we would, you know, you see where I'm going with that? I mean, you have to know one to know the other. And so I agree wholeheartedly the gospel is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, but it is predicated upon some very bad news. And that is this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's predicated upon the fact that in Genesis chapter 3, the first two human beings transgressed the only single law of God they were given, and we all fell in Adam. That we're all born into this world under the judgment and the condemnation of the sin of our father Adam. So the good news comes predicated upon the fact that bad news was first. And this is exactly the thing that is intended to bring sinners to a place of mourning and weeping, and sadness. Because that's what sin does. And if sin don't do that to you, then it's because you've either never been born again, or you just reject and deny what the Bible says about sin in yourself. But the Bible's very clear about sin. We've all sinned. And to show us how we have sinned, God has given us His holy law, has He not? The law was not given to save us. The law was given to teach us, to expose us, to show us, to educate who we are, what we are, how far we have fallen, how far we are away from God, and what a hopeless state we are in as a sinner. By the law is knowledge of sin, Romans 3 and 20. And Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said a lot there, but I'm only going to direct you to one verse, verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And that's about as brief as I know to put it, Because I don't know a more brief way to say it. Paul said it already. 
He said, I wouldn't have known what lust was, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. And that's where lust comes from, is coveting. Wanting something you don't have. So it is by the law that we are exposed as sinners, seeing we have rebelled and sinned against the God of heaven and stand in jeopardy of being judged by Him. We can be convicted of that sin, of that guilt, confess that guilt, come to a place of brokenness and mourning, despair and hopelessness. That's one part of the gospel. And that's the part that precedes the good news. You want to know what that looks like? Turn back to our text. Luke chapter 7. After the verses that we read as a text, Jesus went to a Pharisee's house and began to sit there to eat in verse 36. Verse 37 describes just such an individual who is overcome, who is broken by sin and is mourning over sin. Behold a woman in the city which was a sinner. Bottom line, that's just what I've been describing to you. That's the part of the go- that the gospel is predicated upon, is that we're all sinners in need of deliverance. She was a sinner. Well, guess what? You're a sinner. Guess what? There's nobody that's not a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, stood at his feet behind him weeping, began to wash his feet with tears, and had wiped them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. this, This woman, we don't have time to go into it all, but again here, this is, humanly speaking, we could say this is the lowest act of humility that anybody could ever do. Can you imagine anything this woman could have done that would have been more humanly degrading and humiliating than to wash somebody else's feet and dry them with the hairs of her head and then anoint that individual with a big expensive deal of ointment. And some found fault and thought it was a waste of what she did. But again, why did she do this? She was mourning over her sin. Why wasn't she happy and laughing and rejoicing that this was the Son of God, the Savior of the world? Her focus was on her sin. That comes later. So this is the first tune that the gospel plays. And it's all about sin. You only know happiness by sadness. You only know good news predicated upon bad news. And then the good news comes, the upbeat, the glad tidings, which is what the gospel is indeed. That Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, took upon Himself human flesh and came into the world to save sinners. I like 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Description of this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom... I am chief. Verse 34 of our text, they accuse Jesus as being a friend of publicans and sinners. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? This woman was glad 
he was a friend of sinners, even though he sat in a publican's or a Pharisee's house, that he was a friend of publicans and sinners. Christ is the remedy for the hopelessness and penalty of man's sin. That's the second part of the gospel. And I don't, there is, as I'm not the first to say it, there is no better news than that. Christ is the best news that's ever happened to a sinner that knows they're guilty, hopelessly lost, justly condemned, and just waiting execution. Best news in the world is Jesus Christ. God sent His only begotten Son to deliver you from your sins. That He died on a cruel Roman cross, shed His blood. And if He hadn't shed His blood, if He had just died, He wouldn't atone for nothing. But He shed His blood, suspended there between heaven and earth to cover the sins of sinners, to redeem us, to deliver us. Yes, that causes rejoicing. And to know that, to know that you have been forgiven, to know your sins have been cast behind God's back into the depths of the sea, covered by the blood of Christ, never to be seen again, there is no greater cause for rejoicing. And you know what? Just, grace just doesn't stop there. Not only have we been delivered from the penalty of sin, which is an eternal torment in hell, but we've been conveyed the blessing through Christ's righteousness of being heirs, joint heirs with Him and inheriting eternal life and eternal bliss in heaven with Him. It's unbelievable. There is no greater news. There is no greater news whatsoever. Yet, this is the message that was rejected by those and hell this day has the souls of multitudes of who have rejected this very message. They've heard the gospel, they've read the gospel, or they've had the gospel preached to them, and they rejected it against themselves, not mourning or being convinced or convicted that they were a sinner and therefore it being impossible for them to rejoice in Christ. You know who doesn't rejoice in Christ? Obviously the unbelieving, but you know why they don't rejoice in Christ? Because they don't see themselves as sinner. The woman I read you there in verse 37, she was a sinner. Not only did other seers are a sinner, that really don't matter. It don't matter if others see you as a sinner or not. God sees you as a sinner. And if your opinion of yourself don't come in harmony with what he says, then that's where the trouble is. That woman saw herself as God saw her, as a sinner. That's why she did what she did. And that's why she could leave that day rejoicing. Thy sins are forgiven. <laughs> Go and, you know, so forth and so on. Well, it comes down to this. Where are you at today? Jesus asked a question in Matthew twenty-two forty-two that's pertinent to all peoples of all times, of all generations concerning the gospel. And this is a question that everybody is answering one way or another. What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Those on that day answered him, the son of David. Is that all you see? Son of David. If you see Christ as a prophet, then you come up short. You see a Christ as a great teacher, he was, but you come up short. 
If you see him a son of David, you still come up short. Even if you profess him to be the son of God, but don't trust him as such, you still come up short. He was the son of God. That's irrefutable. Whether you believe it or not, he was the son of God. Do you accept him as who he said he was? Do you believe that? Or do you make God a liar as we said in the beginning? And this all comes down to what we said in Sunday school about obeying the gospel or rejecting the gospel. The gospel says repent and believe. And I will justify my two points of mourning, sadness, and rejoicing on those two things. Repentance has to do with sin. Believing has to do with trusting in Christ. The first one is a sad thing. The first one is a hard thing. It involves sin. The second one is a good thing. Christ takes away sin. Two aspects of the gospel. Repent and believe. If you say you've believed and you don't say anything about repenting, then you have a false hope. You have nothing more than the devils. The devils believe. Where do you think they're going to be? I don't think we're going to be rubbing elbows with them in heaven. The Bible tells us there's a hell prepared for them and their leader, the devil himself. And all Christ rejectors will find themselves in the same pit. But this is much of what is preached many times today as a substitute for the gospel. Just believe. Well, what about repent? you got the cart before the horse. If you've not mourned over sin, if you've not grieved over sin, what do you have to be forgiven of? What good is Christ to you if you're not a sinner? So if you only believe, you have a false hope. You've been deceived. The order is absolute. Those who weep and mourn over their sin are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who see themselves in their sin as hopelessly lost and justly condemned, those are the persons that rejoice in the person of Christ. And as Mary Magdalene in the garden will fall down and embrace His feet because He's Lord and Savior. He's our only hope. Have you mourned over sin? If you haven't mourned over sin, you can't rejoice over Christ. We've shared with you today the best of our ability, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will you do with it? Will you obey it? Will you confess that God is true in what He says about you and your sin? Or will you deny it as these did and reject the gospel about themselves and about Christ? Only to be judged by that very thing at a later time. May God be merciful to those that are lost and hear us today and to we who believe may rejoice in our Savior that He convicted us of our sins that we would flee to Him for forgiveness of those sins. To His glory, amen.